The world beneath the ocean waves is mysterious and fascinating. Although this underwater environment is vastly different from dry land, both were designed by the same creator and are in certain ways quite similar. Stay tuned. One has to say, aren't these environments totally isolated from one another? And the answer is no. This is Science, Scripture, and Salvation, a Creation Radio Journal. I'm Chris O'Brien with the Institute for Creation Research. The great oceans that surround us are filled with a diversity of strange life, darkness, and undiscovered treasures of knowledge. Yet, as alien as the underwater world may seem, in some respects, it parallels life here on land. How so? Stay tuned for the next 15 minutes as we dive into a discussion about some of the differences and similarities between the dry land and the seas. We read in Scripture how God formed the seas on day three of the creation week. Genesis 1, 9 and 10 tells us, And God said, Let the waters under the heaven be gathered together unto one place, and let the dry land appear. And it was so. And God called the dry land earth, and the gathering together of the waters called he seas. And God saw that it was good. Frank Sherwin is an ICR biologist and author of The Ocean Book. He says the created oceans play an essential part in our life here on earth. When we look to the oceans, we find indeed that the oceans are incredibly diversified and important in regard to not only the critical weather patterns of this planet, but also providing the oxygen and the food that these great oceans of ours have been created and the purpose that they have. When we look at this planet, we see that the oceans comprise, and indeed water comprises, almost three-quarters of the surface of this planet. But on either side of the border of sand and sea lie two different worlds. ICR biologist Dr. Gary Parker says although life on Earth can be fast-paced and busy, life in the underwater world seems even busier because of its all-encompassing activity. On land, you know, we basically, you know, keep our feet on the ground or our automobiles on the ground and things like that. And we're not looking over and around and behind. And it's multi-level living. So you have things cruising in from all sorts of different directions. The colors are spectacular. And the three-dimensional reefs are the most colorful, largest apartment complexes on Earth. And uh, so it's a dazzling world that really stretches our mind and hearts in praise to the God who made things not only functional, but also just absolutely breathtakingly beautiful. Frank Sherwin. I've had the opportunity to scuba dive on occasion, and as we go down into the depths of the ocean, we find that we really are entering a very different world. The face mask begins to press harder on our face. It becomes more and more difficult to breathe. It becomes colder, darker. And yet we find that the deeper we go, there's still life that flourishes throughout these great oceans of ours. There's a cyclic amount of, of water that occurs in great undersea currents. When we go into the ocean, we find that, yes, indeed, it is truly a different world, but it's a world created by God for His glory and for His purpose. In comparing the differences between land and ocean-dwelling environments, Let's consider the challenges a human would have in order to survive underwater. ICR biologist Dr. Ken Cumming. Pressure is a big problem. As you can imagine, maybe man experiences anywhere from a half an atmosphere of pressure to a one atmosphere of pressure at sea level. But once you go start to go down in depth, for every, I think, is 10 meters of depth, 
you increase an, another atmosphere of pressure. So very rapidly, you go down to heavy, heavy pressures, and they, that would compress a marine mammal or a human that was trying to swim in the ocean. Just that pressure would collapse their lungs or put severe pressure on their lungs. So we have this problem of what would a man have to have in order to survive in the marine environment? He'd have to have some insulation to protect him from the cold of the water. He'd have to have an oxygen supply because he cannot extract oxygen from the salt water with his lungs. But air to breathe and protection from the cold are not the only things a person would need in order to survive in the ocean. In addition, man would have to be concerned about his routine activities. Uh, waste control, how would he remove waste? In such a situation, that would be uh, very difficult to conduct. Further, man's vision would be impaired because light only penetrates a certain distance into the ocean. So light is extinguished, whereas on land, light is quite visible during the day, even when it's rainy and overcast. So the light problem is one that's very important. And of course, obviously, vision is important. When you get into the ocean, a man's eye is not organized or shaped in such a way as to see well in the ocean. Now, let's turn the tide and talk about a fish out of water. Take a herring, a surface kind of fish, and it's very comfortable in the surface waters and can go for its whole lifetime in these waters. But take him out of the water and he will rapidly dehydrate uh, in the sense of dry, and the moisture is very critical to his survival, and, and the, the mobility of his skin, the flexibility of his skin is related to the water environment that he lives in. So the moisture issue is very important for a fish, and particularly a herring. So you take him out of the water and put him on land, and he won't last very long, maybe five, ten minutes, and he's done primarily because he cannot extract oxygen from the air directly. He has to have it in the form of a soluble material, such as water. Dissolve oxygen in the salt water, then he can pick it up with his gills. So he can't breathe very well in air. We can breathe very well in air. Fishes can't breathe very well at all. It's not difficult to understand the stark contrast between land and sea environments. But Dr. Cummings says when you look closer, it's easy to see the similarity in the two as well. When you look at this picture of the extreme differences, then one has to say, aren't these environments totally isolated from one another? And the answer is no. They have an interface, the surface of the ocean or the beach or the shore, whatever you might call. There is an interface which separates these two environments but the behavior of the organisms in those two environments is pretty much the same. They all have to breathe. They all have to eat. They all have to get rid of waste. They all have to operate in some community affairs. So the organizational part and the metabolic functions are very comparable, only the tissues involved are quite different. So all told, these two environments are Similar in metabolic or physiological functions, but very different in anatomical abilities. And both systems were designed perfectly by the Creator. God has created these two environments so that they help each other. The ocean is a very important source of fresh water for the water cycle. The ocean is 
an important source of getting rid of waste and dumping them into the sedimentary layers of the ocean floor. The land is very important for a supply of oxygen, large amounts of oxygen and gases that interface and exchange with the ocean surface to allow the marine environment to have gases appropriate for their metabolic needs. God has truly prepared a place for these different organisms and they supply food for one another. Some of the terrestrial animals become food for the marine animals and vice versa. But all told, both land and ocean are part of a grander, large-scale trophic system, a food chain system. Another interesting comparison between land and sea is the way some things in the ocean resemble and are named after things on the dry ground. For instance, Dr. Parker tells us about a unique little creature called a sea cucumber. Some of them look just like a cucumber, only a cucumber that's kind of limp, you know, and and soggy. But they have a fantastic ability. Uh, If you pick one up or they get disturbed or a fish attacks it, this cucumber can squirt out its insides. And it's got quite a lot inside. You know, it's got a mouth and a pharynx and esophagus and intestine and stomach. It's got a respiratory tree for breathing. Uh, It has reproductive organs. And all of these are just spit out through the back end. (laughs) And there's this little pile of colorful innards left behind. So a fish that might be attacking a sea cucumber stops to eat all these goodies. And the hollow shell crawls off and regenerates all of its inside organs. That's fairly awesome. <laughs> it's actually a member of the starfish group. It walks around on little tube feet like starfish do, but otherwise the resemblance is not obvious. Some are just kind of a dull olive green, you know, like a rotten cucumber, but others are striped and, and breathtaking colors and, and so on. They are really awesome creatures. And sea creatures that resemble things on land should remind us that all things were designed by the same creator. It just shows us that God is not really limited. He's the author of variety and can use the same form and shape to create different organisms. An illustration that it's his choice, not time and chance, that creates the different living things. Frank Sherwin tells us that although evolutionists insist that the underwater world took millions of years to evolve, the fossil record disagrees with this idea. When we look to the fossils, we find the fossils show an abrupt appearance of complex life and then stasis, stasis meaning no change. Where did the first fish come from? The first fish, according to the fossil record, came from fish. When it comes to invertebrates, those animals without a backbone, the same thing holds true. Sea jellies, otherwise known as jellyfish, have always been sea jellies. And they have inhabited a great variety of niches throughout the ocean. I think it's interesting that in the state of Wisconsin just a few years ago, scientists were amazed to find clear fossil imprints of jellyfish, or these sea jellies. Well, if a sea jelly washes up on the shore, especially if it's a bright sunny day, It takes minutes to hours for them to decompose into a gelatinous mass. And yet what paleontologists, those who study fossils, found in Wisconsin were the clear imprints of these sea jellies showing that they had to be buried very, very rapidly by sediments like you would get with, well, perhaps a flood. Dr. Parker says even though the global flood of Noah's day destroyed the whole world, 
Both earth and ocean have recovered from the devastating effects of it through God's restoration. I began to think about trips where I'd taken students on the coral reefs off Florida. And you might see a place where a boat propeller scraped a coral reef. And the next time we went to that location, the corals had already grown back. Sometimes they sink boats and wrecks and things like that as a surface for the corals to attach to. And their rate of growth is phenomenal. It indicates the restoration of all things. God provided a way of escape for no one knows with him on the ark for the dry land animals, but God also provided restoration to the sea creatures. And it's just amazing how rapidly the earth recovered from the dramatic effects of the flood. And it's a reminder of that final restoration to come when Christ returns again. As our program comes to a close, we hope that you've been encouraged. It's our desire at ICR to show that the Bible can be trusted, both historically and scientifically, and to give facts that will build your faith. As Christians, we need to understand the scientific basis for our beliefs. We pray that this program will aid you in your discovery of science and the Bible. You know, most people aren't aware that today there are thousands of scientists that are convinced of the truth of biblical creation and not evolution. Our non-denominational ministry aims to restore and strengthen the Genesis foundations of the Christian faith. If you've enjoyed today's edition of Science, Scripture, and Salvation, a Creation Radio Journal, why not visit us on the web to find out more about the work of ICR. The address is www.icr.org. Again, www.icr.org. Science, Scripture, and Salvation, a Creation Radio Journal, is a production of ICR. For the Institute for Creation Research, I'm Chris O'Brien. Thanks for tuning in.